Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Good morning, you guys. Fun day at CBC. Welcome to the gym. Uh, next week, we're going to drop the barrier. There's going to be pickleball going on over here. <laughs> Whatever's happening during the sermon, people just sweat, Brad. That's just what happens. So I, I'm not too sure about all, this, all these things. But hey, thanks so much for being here. After the service, just want a uh, general announcement for everybody. If you can help stack chairs, we still use the gym during the week for things like pickleball and basketball practice. So we want to stack them about seven or eight high if you can. We've got three dollies to move them to the walls. That would be awesome. So appreciate any help you would have for that. And thank you for your patience through this process. Uh, we'll keep you updated with some photos, just different things along the way. And um, really just, just appreciate everybody who has been a part of making this happen, uh, whether that's through donations, giving, um, the project that's about to be that, about to start over in the auditorium, or just serving to make this happen. Kirk was probably, what did you get, about 80 hours, 70 hours this week, Kirk, and several volunteers getting us set up over here. So it takes a lot of people to make my voice sound somewhat um, listenable. Uh, okay in the ears, and it's, it really does take a lot of people to pull these things off. So thank you guys for everything that you're doing. Thank you for your patience this process. Um, super excited about that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 4 this morning. And as you guys are turning to Exodus 4, I actually want to read a, uh, a passage from Acts chapter 6. So you guys just turn to Exodus 4 and listen as you're turning. That'd be great. You don't have to um, turn to Acts right now. I just want to read it for you. In Acts chapter 6, a really interesting situation happens. Um, uh, Hebrew widows uh, were being served, and the Gentile widows were being overlooked in the serving of tables and caring for them. And so there was uh, an issue as the church grew, they had problems and conflicts that came about. And in verse three, their solution to this problem was, was pretty simple. It says this, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom who we will appoint to this duty to serve uh, the widows and the tables better. But verse four, we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These are all uh, very Gentile Greek names uh, to serve the tables there as their solution. And um, when you look at scripture, I want to just talk about this is, this is a passage in Acts 6 that talks about uh, the beginning of a, a deacon ministry, right? There's, there's men that we're going to serve to do a lot of the physical things behind the scenes, take care of things really with their hands and in their service and in their efforts while uh, the disciples, the, um, the apostles were responsible for the teaching of God's word, for prayer, 
and for shepherding the early church as it grew and as it developed in the, in the early church period that we see described in the book of Acts. And it's really interesting, the, the one difference you can, you can say between an elder and a deacon is that when you look at the First Timothy 3 passages in the Titus chapter 1, is that the elders are capable, they're able, and they have a gift of teaching God's word. Whereas deacons, that's the one thing that they don't necessarily have to fulfill. It's more of a servant role. It's more behind the scenes. And I wanted to, uh, wanted to address this in Acts 6, not because it necessarily contributes to our, our text in Exodus right away, but because uh, we've had a guy that has served as a deacon here at TBC for several, several years. He's been a staff member at TBC for 20 plus years, I believe, and haven't really taken any time uh, to, to address this with the congregation as much as we've done with just the elders and the deacons. And I wanted to, uh, to highlight the efforts, number one, of our awesome serving deacons at Tulsa Bible Church, but also just show a deep sense of gratitude and thankfulness for Troy Cooper and what he has done at Tulsa Bible Church for all these years. The, what's interesting when you read the book of Acts and you get into chapter seven, it's not Peter or Paul that gives the deepest, the most thorough history of Israel and how God has worked through redemptive history. It's a, it's a deacon, it's the Stephen. And when it describes him in Acts, it describes him as a man full of the spirit who is given wisdom who is a problem solver and just able to take on this task that was set before him. And at the end of, of Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is being stoned for his faith, you see Jesus is standing in the heavens, almost as if to approve uh, this man of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit. And I just think about a lot, of, a lot of things that you guys see, you guys probably know Troy, if you've been here for a while, you know his heart, you know his uh, impeccable work ethic. Um, this guy just has one gear. He just goes and goes and goes. Um, but a lot of you don't see stuff during the staff meetings uh, when we're doing devotions, we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the character of God. Uh, Troy Cooper has taught Bible study classes here for, for several years, and every time in staff meeting, if we're going through a study, if we're talking about the truth of God's word, uh, that is when Troy comes out of his shell and he shares so much about his great love for God, his Savior, and the truth of the gospel. And so we've got, we've got a gift card for you, Troy. I want to just say thanks so much for, uh, can't be, you can't be looking at me like that, man. Appreciate you so much, man. You're an you. awesome, awesome guy. Another thing, buy some tool, buy some uh, some toolboxes for all those tools. All right, man. Appreciate you. Uh, forgive me for that. I'm coming right back up. <clears throat> After the service, I'm sure um, many of you would like to extend your own personal gratitude to Troy. I want to encourage you to do that. But super blessed to have him. Uh, Exodus chapter four. Let me pray. Father in heaven, just um, thank you so much for our church family here. Thank you for what you're doing in Tulsa uh, through us, despite us, despite our weaknesses, our, our failures, our sinfulness. Lord, you still use very imperfect people for your glory and for your purposes. Uh, we're going to see that in Exodus chapter 4 as we look at 
the life of Moses and his calling this morning. Um, I pray that it would just spur us to a stronger dependence, a stronger reliance, a stronger trust in you. Um, Lord, we don't know why you choose to use very uh, hesitant, um, almost waffling people uh, for your purposes, but you do. Lord, and um, ultimately so that any credit, any, um, anything that would come from us would be directly related to who you are and what you're doing in our lives. So I pray as we open Exodus chapter 4 and look into your word and think about Moses and his calling, uh, what you asked him to do, the calling that you've given to us in our lives to be parents, to be husbands, to be wives, to be, be fathers, uh, mothers, grandparents. These callings, the callings that you've given to us are uh, extremely important for your purposes and for your glory. I pray that we would take them seriously. I pray that the truth of the gospel would be evident through those things, uh, that you continue to encourage us and spur us on to love one another with good deeds, Lord. And uh, we ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. If you got Exodus chapter 4, I'm going to start, I'm going to just read verses 1 through 17 to start, okay? Exodus 4, 1 through 17. This is a little bit of a longer passage, so please bear with me. It said, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. This is speaking of the Israelites now. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. It's, it's really interesting, and just want to point one thing out. The word for serpent here in Exodus chapter 4 is different for the word for serpent in Exodus 7, when Aaron throws his staff on the ground in the presence of, of uh, Pharaoh. Uh, here, it's your typical word for a snake. There, Exodus 7, it's the word for a sea monster. It could be a crocodile in that respect. So we're going to talk about that more as we get to Exodus 7. Just wanted to point it out here. Um, does it, we won't really deal with that too much today. Um, verse 3, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put out your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign they may believe the latter sign, verse 9. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. 
When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Really interesting passage uh, about Moses and the Lord calling him to his task and, and almost reluctant to take it. One of my favorite movies is Gladiator. Whenever I think about Exodus chapter four, I think about this scene. It's at the very beginning. Some of you guys have seen Gladiator know that it's at the height of the Roman empire and Marcus Aurelius is the emperor at that time. He knows he's getting old. He knows he's frail. He knows he's probably gonna die pretty soon. But his son, whom he would pass the throne on to, this, this emperor title to, the protector of Rome, is not capable of ruling. He's not a moral man. He says that his son Commodus cannot rule, he must not rule. And so instead, his plan is to enthrone his most trusted general, Maximus, to be the next protector of Rome, the next emperor. And he meets with, with Maximus and he says, I've got one more task for you. I want you to be the protector of Rome when I die. And Maximus is just dumbfounded. This general of Rome can't believe the task he's been called to. And Marcus Aurelius looks at him and he says, do you not accept this great task that I am bestowing on you? And his res response is just, it's a great response. He says, without even hesitating, so with all my heart, no, I don't accept this task. Perhaps a politician, somebody who knows Rome, the city, how it runs, and all the systems behind it, but I don't want it. A very similar thing takes place in Exodus chapter four. God calls Moses to go to Egypt to free, to redeem the Israelite slaves. But in a, in a little bit of a different manner, it's almost as if Moses says, with all my heart, no. I don't want to do this. Send somebody else. And what's really ironic when you read through the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter two, Moses was the wrong leader because he wanted to lead Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus three and four, he's the right leader because he didn't want to lead Israel out of, out of Egypt. Oz Guinness has a really good uh, thought in spiritual leadership. Is this on your screens? You guys, it might tell you next screen back there, just arrow through it because I can't see it. All right. Oz Guinness says, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have no rights, only responsibilities. A lot of people uh, talk about Christian rights. What are our rights as Christians? I think Oz Guinness really hits this out of the park. Whenever the Bible speaks about freedom and rights, it tells us to lay those things down for God's glory and for the good of others instead. So Guinness says we have no rights, only responsibilities. Following Christ is not our initiative, it's merely our response and obedience. And then he says this, he says, nothing works better to debunk the pretensions of choice more than the convictions of calling. Once we have been called, we have no choice. The passage is, is about responding to the call of God this morning in Exodus chapter four, verses one through 26, you're gonna see three things about responding to the call of God. The first thing is to fear God, not man, in our response, to focus vertically, not horizontally, number two, and then finally to forsake our comfort zones. Fear God, not man, 
focus vertically, not horizontally, and forsake our comfort zones. Uh, next slide here, guys. Moses is a reluctant service, uh, reluctant servant. The almost nearest equivalent to Moses in this passage is probably Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Where's Kaylin when I need it? Kaylin, did you sing it? Thanks for that. Never really got it, right? He's the reluctant prophet that didn't want to go to Nineveh. Moses is, is the reluctant prophet. He really doesn't want to go to Egypt. The longer he talks, the longer he dialogues with God, the more reluctant he becomes. He's either hesitant or at the very least reluctant. And you're going to see five times through Exodus that Moses is he's not accepting this just everything in, I'm all in with this, God. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses' first hesitation, who am I that I should go? God said, listen, it doesn't matter who you are, it matters who I am, right? And so his second rebuttal was, you know, God, who are you? Who shall I say sent me to you? I am who I am, was God's reply. Thirdly, Moses, Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, what if they don't believe me? What am I supposed to do then? Fourth, Exodus 4.10, I'm really not charismatic. I'm not a great speaker. Certainly put somebody else up here who can, is a little bit more eloquent in speech, more convincing. Certainly somebody would be better than me. Finally, fifth, he just flat out says, and this is what brings about God's anger. He says, send somebody else. Uh, it's not me. Now, here's the positive about Moses. Moses is a man who knows that he hasn't arrived yet. Does that make sense to you? There's another uh, a Paul Tripp thought here. He says, arrival crushes the gratitude that fuels personal worship. When you get to a point in your Christian life that you've got it all figured out, you've arrived, everything goes to you, yes, I can do this, you sh you're depending more upon yourself than you're ever trusting in God, that's a bad place to be. That's what we, we would say that's prideful in Scripture. Moses is not a prideful man. He knows that he hasn't arrived. And that really is a true, honorable, humble response from Moses. But negatively, he was overly concerned about what other people would think. In this role, this call that God has given him, he is overly concerned about what people thought. And he's not concerned enough about what God thinks. In this situation, he fears, fears people more than he fears God, and it cripples his calling. All right, so number one in your outline, number one, what I want to work through is responding to the call of God. We fear God, not man. We fear God, not man. Verse one in your text says this, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, here's my question. Who? Who will not believe me or listen to my voice? And the plural pronoun here is they. And that they does not refer to Pharaoh, does not refer to the Egyptians in any way. The they there refers to Israel. And Moses had really good reason to be concerned, right? He tried this before. Remember, 40 years ago, he went and he tried it on his own initiative. Remember what the guy said to him? Uh, Who made you judge and prince over us? Moses, this wasn't our decision. Why would Israel trust Moses now? 40 years ago, when he was in his prime, 
Eight, guys, I'm 41 this year. Just in case you wanted to know. Just want to, Bobby, point that out. Up here. Moses is 80, right? At, at 80 years of age, if they didn't listen to him when he was 40, why are they going to listen to him now when he's 80? And there's something to be said in this text about the lifespan and the usability of people even into their older ages. And Moses is 80 years old, and he hasn't even started to liberate the people of Israel. His, his ministry will go on for another 40 years, strong, sure, and steadfast, leading the people through the wilderness. If you're sitting here and you're 80 years old or over, wondering, what can God do with me at this age? Look no further than the story of Moses. God greatly used this man, uh, despite he is not a respecter of age when it comes to usability for his kingdom. He greatly used a man who was, who was 80 in age, even more so than when he was 40. It's a, a really great thing to think about. So God gives Moses three signs to convince people that he had the power and the authority of God. Um, one of my favorite scenes in Lord of the Rings is when Gandalf comes to King Theoden, the king of Rohan, it's kind of Tolkien's uh, version of somebody being possessed, right, by Sauron, by the evil ring. And he comes into this throne room. Uh, King Theoden had been possessed by, by Sauron, this evil master of the ring, for years and years. And he comes into his throne room, and he just sees this, this king who's almost shriveled up, unable to do anything. He's not the king that he remembers. And Gandalf walks in there. And he begins to speak to King Theoden to say, you will not have control through Sauron in this situation anymore. And, and the statement from Theoden is, what power do you have here, Gandalf Stormcrow? Right? And so he takes off his robe and he puts his staff forward. And his power was greater than the power of Sauron at that moment. He casts out Sauron out of King Theoden like poison is taken out of a wound, is what Tolkien says. Because the power of Gandalf was greater than the power of Sauron at that moment. Uh, the power and the authority that God was given Moses was greater than the power and the authority of Egypt. And what you're seeing here is a polemic is starting. There's gonna be Egypt and Pharaoh, its power and its authority, and it's gonna be God and his power and his authority. And these two sovereignties are gonna battle each other, and we're gonna see who comes out of it by the end of uh, the plague accounts, especially. In Exodus, God gives Moses three signs to say that his power is greater than Pharaoh. He turns his staff into a snake, and back again to his staff, he turns his hand leprous, and back again to a healed hand, and then he turns the water of the Nile into blood. The first sign is this. He turns his staff into a snake. Now, snakes were extremely important in ancient Near Eastern culture. In fact, if you look at a lot of the headdresses of the pharaohs and the ancient artifacts that have been discovered, a lot of times you'll see a snake, the head of a cobra or a viper, right at the head of that headdress. Snakes were known for being both good and bad in Egypt. Uh, snakes were good when they were eating all the mice and the rodents out of the storehouses of grain that they desperately needed to make it through the long seasons of drought and the hot summers there. Snakes were bad, obviously, because they're poisonous, they strike, and they're, and they're deadly. In hieroglyphics, Egypt has the Egyptian hieroglyphics. The, the sound you would make for an F is a horned viper. 
the symbol for F sound is a horned viper. And if you look at it, it has its head chopped off, symbolizing that that's how you kill a horned viper. But the sound it makes as it slithers through the sand is an F sound. So when you see that in Egypt, it's so prominent in Egypt that it was part of their hieroglyphics and part of their culture in that way. Uh, the Egyptian word for crown is yaret. It literally means one who rears up. Think about a snake as one who rears up in power. Snakes were, were a symbol of chaos in Egypt. The underworld was often depicted by this long, just almost like, it looks like a big maze. You'll see it, just this long slithering snake that goes on forever in any piece of artifact that you find. The underworld is often depicted by snakes. Each, in each sign that God gives to Moses, something harmless is changed into something threatening. And then it's changed back into something that is harmless again. It could be that these signs are foreshadowing what God was going to do to Pharaoh through the plagues. It's gonna take something very harmless, Moses, his power coming to him, make it extremely threatening, whether it means turning the Nile into blood, uh, multiplying the frogs in the land, gnats, pestilence, storms, hail. Again, these harmless things would be okay, but then if they're not checked, they become a severe threat. Uh, the polemic, again, is, is the God of Moses versus the God and the sovereignty of Pharaoh. The second sign that's given to Moses, he puts his hand inside his cloak, it becomes leprous, he takes his hand out, realizes it. He puts his hand in there again, takes it out, and realizes it's healed. There's a very strong association in the ancient Near East with healing and being the source of life and coming in contact with those who could heal. Skin diseases especially were greatly feared at this point in time. Uh, by the time you get to Jesus in the first century, Leper, the lepers had colonies. They were separated from the cities because people were so afraid of coming in contact with them and contracting that skin disease themselves. In effect, the miracle of, of the leper's hand and healing it again, in effect, it's saying, can your God heal like our God heals? Can your God do what the God of Moses is doing? The third sign turns the water of the Nile into blood. And the Egyptians believed that the Nile was the source of all life. This is extremely important. In fact, the god of the Nile was called Hapi in Egyptian. And Hapi was a hermaphrodite. Uh, it was depicted with a male face, this god, and female body parts. So it had the ability, when you think about the Nile, was looked at as a source giving life and also sustaining life. That's why the God had both male and female characteristics, enabling the God to fertilize as well as nourish. But by turning the Nile into blood, God was showing that he can turn this source of life into death for the Egyptians. If they don't respond and recognize his power, his authority over both life and death. Moses is still afraid even after he gets these signs. He still doesn't want to go to Egypt. He's still reluctant to go and accept this task from God. Ed Welch has a book, it's called, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he says a few things. Three things happen when we fear people. Next slide. 
We fear people because they can expose us and humiliate us, Ed Welch says. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, and despise us. Thirdly, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, and threaten us. And he continues and he says this, these three things have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, more powerful, and more significant than God. And out of that fear, we give people the power and the right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. And he concludes it by saying this, anything that erodes the fear of God intensifies the fear of man. Anything that erodes the fear of God intensifies the fear of man. Moses is still fearful of man, which means he's not fearing God more than he fears man. In responding to the call of God, I think we learn from Moses' mistake here to fear God, not man. Number one, fear God, not man. Number two, focus vertically in responding to the call of God. Focus vertically, not horizontally. Uh, Paul Tripp has a book, mostly for pastors, people in ministry. It's called Dangerous Calling. I would really highly recommend it to you. It's a great book. He says this, if you are in ministry and you are not reminding yourself again and again of the now-isms of the gospel, that is the right here, right now benefits of the grace of Christ, you will be looking elsewhere to find what can only be found in Jesus. If you are not feeding your soul on the realities of the presence, the power, and the provisions of Christ, you will ask people and situations around you to be your Messiah that they can never be. If you are not attaching yourself in your identity to the unshakable love of your Savior, you will look to things in your life to be your Savior and salvation, which will never happen. If you are not requiring that the deepest sense of yourself be found vertically, Paul Tripp says, you will shop for it horizontally, and you will always come up empty. Moses is shopping for something from people that he should have been looking to get from God and from God alone. Uh, look down at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, when God rifles off these questions, he responds to Moses with questions. Sounds like Jesus always responds to a question with a question, right? Uh, he sounds a lot like when God spoke to Job in chapter 38, right? Who is this who darkens counsel? by words without knowledge. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When Jeremiah was called to the great task of being a prophet that he was called to, he said, who am I that I should go and be a prophet of God? I am only a youth. And God responded to Jeremiah this way. He said, before I formed you, I knew you, even from your mother's womb. And over and over again, when people are reluctant to accept the call of God, over and over again, God goes back to creation. He goes back to the very beginning. Here in Exodus to Moses, he says, who made man's mouth in the first place? Why? The question I have is, why does, why does God always go back to creation? Why does he go back to the way that Moses was first knit together? Why does he go back to creation with Job when Job is struggling? And the answer is that, number one, God is first means that he is the priority, he is preeminent. There is nothing before God. 
No one tells God what to do. No one tells God what he cannot do. Moses is attempting to reason with his creator about how he was created. There's no, thank you for laughing. There's, there's, there's no subtleties there. This is unreasonable in every respect of the word. God made everything. And everything that God made was designed for a purpose, for his purpose to glorify himself. Uh, Romans 11 says that from him, to him, and through him are all things. To God be the glory. God gave Moses his mouth. He created his mouth. Now Moses is accountable to using his mouth in a way that God designed him to create it, to glorify him. There's a really good biblical principle, I think, in this text. It goes something like this. Blindness to the one above you will make you slaves to those who are around you. Blindness to the God who is above you, who created you, who made you, will make you slaves to those around you. Moses goes from questioning God to asking for someone else to speak for him. Now, by the end of this passage, he just flat out says, send somebody else. I look down at, at verse 13. He said, oh my Lord, please send somebody else. And then verse 14, it sparks the anger of God. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he kind of, he gives Moses what he's asking for, but you, you obviously get the impression it's like um, Israel asking for a king, for Saul to be their next king. Okay, you want a king? Here it is. I really don't want to do this. I really don't want Aaron to have to step up into this position, but I'm going to allow it. The anger of God is kindled. Um, I, there's another uh, um, really good Lord of the Rings illustration, but I'm going I'm to focus on and get past it. When you focus vertically and God calls you to do something that you know you cannot do on your own power, your own initiative, your own self-will, or your own abilities, when you focus vertically, it demands, it almost always demands that you have to get out of your comfort zone. When I was young in ministry, a lot of people come to me uh, a lot, actually, and ask me this question, especially when I was uh, younger and, and just taking on senior pastor responsibilities the beginning, uh, people come up to me all the time and they say, Jared, I love your God, I love Christianity, but does this really mean I have to give up dating? Does this really mean that I can no longer have fun and go out and hang out with the guys that I love to hang out with? Does this mean I'm gonna have to stop doing this thing in my life? And at the beginning of my ministry, I really told people, I said, listen, you know, take one step at a time in order for you to become a Christian in the first place, it's an act of belief. It's not you doing anything. You simply trust in God. And over the years, I've, I've kind of learned to take a step back from that. Not because I want to enter works into that equation, and not because I want to make people think that, um, you know, salvation is uh, just free of cost, and there's going to be no, nothing that's going to come about that's going to uh, cause you to surrender or do anything like that. It was just, I wanted to preserve the free message and the grace of God uh, through the gospel, through simple faith and responding to the call. Uh, but since then, I've kind of taken a step back to say, when you respond to the call of God, it is a radical, drastic response. Believing in the Lord Jesus, yes, it is absolutely free. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve your salvation in and of yourself. But when you come into this thing called the Christian life, you are surrendering your life to God. 
And he expects you to be a different person after you trust him than when you didn't believe in him. And so if you have these hesitations like, man, I really wanna trust God, but I don't wanna give this thing over in my life, that's the wrong approach when you're coming to the Lord God of heaven and earth, who will drastically change your desires, your patterns, your habits, and transform them into something that's glorious and beautiful for his purposes and ultimately for your glory. But when you focus vertically, responding to the call of God, typically it costs something. Almost always forces you out of your comfort zones. Uh, Responding to the call is never easy, but when you do respond, you will be a blessing to others. Your values are forced to change, to leverage up and to reflect the glory of God. And you experience the security of God like never before as you walk as a Christian. Right now you have, you probably, there's no doubt in my mind that there's several of you in this room who know people that aren't Christians in your life. And you have the truth of the gospel. You know the truth of the gospel. And you're sitting in your chair right now and you haven't spoken that truth to them because you're afraid. You're afraid that that relationship is gonna be damaged if you tell them the truth. Ultimately, when you see passages like Abram, go, leave your country, leave your family, everything you have, and go into the land that I'm promising you. Go to Egypt, Moses. You will be my mouthpiece. You will go to the most powerful man on the face of the earth, but I want you to go. When you see those things, they're not easy. They're forcing, Moses is being forced to get out of his comfort zone. He has to risk to respond to the call of God. And you've got to take some risks to share the gospel with people that might infringe upon your friendship after that or the relationship that you have that's in front of you. But when you do respond, you will be a blessing to others. You cannot be afraid of the call of God because it will force you out of your comfort zone. That's just universal in scripture. Responding to the call of God means fearing God more than man, means focusing vertically more than horizontally. And number three, it means forsaking our comfort zones, forsaking our comfort zones and walking in obedience to the God who saved us and loved us. Um, I wanna, want you to skip down to uh, everybody's favorite passage in Exodus chapter four, which is the bridegroom of blood passage. All right, let's read uh, verse 24. Skip down to chapter four, verse 24 through 26. And if somebody wants to come up and preach this, I'm, I'm happy to allow you to do that. All right. Um, before I read this, just please know that this passage is um, filled with mystery. It is so enigmatic when you look at this. There's so much that we don't know about what's going on here. Verse 24. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him, speaking of Moses, and sought to put him to death. Something happened <laughs> between the call of God and Moses here as he's going back to Sinai, he's going, he's going back to Egypt uh, to find his brother Aaron, right? Lodging place along the way, the Lord met him, sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, the wife of the Midianite man that was given to Moses, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Feet in the Hebrew Bible is often a euphemism for the lower part of the body. 
We don't know if literal feet are mentioned there or other parts of the body being mentioned. We don't know a lot of the ESV that I just read for you inserts Moses' name in there. All you have is pronouns. Uh, these, these terms could be for referring to Moses. They could be referring to Gershom. They could be referring to another son that Moses had in Midian. Uh, these two sons now, specifically. Uh, we don't know. We just, translators are filling in a lot of details. So just be really careful as you read this text. Surely you are a bridegroom of, bridegroom of blood to me. What does that mean? Verse 26, so he let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision, all right? It seems to be the case that Moses took on the office of deliverer and redeemer, but he didn't take on the obedience. It seems to be the case that Moses is being called out for not circumcising his sons, as a true Israelite would have done at this point in time. Uh, the best explanation to me is the one that's most favored by commentators. Moses did not circumcise his firstborn son. And so he left that to Zipporah, his wife, to do, which was obviously later on in life. Shouldn't have had to happen. Uh, one of the badges of the Jewish law, you, you're talking about Sabbath laws, food laws, and circumcision. Even today, if you are a practicing Jew, the three badges of the law Sabbath, food laws, and circumcision. This is big in their culture, in their religion, and in the history of Israel. Uh, Thomas Dozman has a commentary on Exodus. He puts it this way. What stands out in this text is that Zipporah, not Moses, knows the special, special rituals for protection, and that in performing them, I think I got a slide on this one. What stands out in this text is that Zipporah, not Moses, knows the special rituals for protection, and that in performing them, she rescues Moses from the attack of Yahweh. So again, Exodus has this thing about women stepping up and doing what the men aren't doing at the beginning of the book, along with the Hebrew midwives, along with Pharaoh's daughter, along with um, Miriam's daughter, or Miriam, and, uh, and Moses' mother, you have another incredible account of a woman doing what the man should have been doing the whole time. And she comes out looking a lot better than Moses does. Paul Tripp, <clears throat> Paul Tripp puts it this way, in Dangerous Calling, I think this is good. He says, you and I are in possession of two vision systems. You and I are in possession of two vision systems. There are physical eyes that enable us to see the physical universe and the world that's around us. Then there are the eyes of our heart that enable us to see the visual, spiritual realities around us. And he says this, sin plays havoc on our spiritual vision. Although we are able to see the sin of others with specificity and clarity, we tend to be blind to our own. And the most dangerous aspect of this already dangerous condition is that spiritually blind people tend to be blind to their own blindness. Moses is called by God to do an amazing task for Israel. He doesn't want to do it. He goes, he asks for Aaron's help. He goes and he does it anyway. He goes with Aaron's help. And even on his way, he is found in his disobedience to God that he hadn't even circumcised his own son. How can this redeemer, liberator of Israel be the one who will lead his people if he himself is not obedient to the call of God to carry out his commands? 
Uh, you're learning a lot about Moses understanding his blind spots, his sin issues, and being able to overcome those as a leader with help from other people, a lot of help from other people. Uh, two application points in responding to the call of God. Number one, <clears throat> when you respond to the call of God, be certain it's God's voice. Be certain it's God's voice that you're responding to. How do I know that the Lord is speaking to me? How do I know that the Lord is speaking to me? There are 66 books of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, where the word has given you directly his words to you to respond to. You can know that the Lord is speaking to you when you read scripture. When you take the text for what it says and you apply it to your life in the ways that you know the Holy Spirit is asking you to apply it. God's voice is the clearest in the pages of scripture. You don't have to look for it in the stars. You don't have to look for a sign in the clouds. You can read God's word and know what his will is. It's not that hard to know God's will when you read scripture on a normal and a regular basis. Second, God uses counselors. He uses friends. He uses coaches. He uses mentors. He uses godly men and women to speak and to give you advice into situations that the Bible doesn't necessarily tell you the black and white areas of what you should do. Look to the community of faith to hear the voice of God speaking just as much as uh, anything else in terms of determining God's will for your life. God will use the community around you. Uh, Acts chapter six, the passage that I started out reading this morning. The people of God come together and they assemble for themselves men of good repute, full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit to respond to these things. That's the community of faith working to listen to God's voice together. God uses pain and suffering in your life to speak to you. C.S. Lewis said that pain was God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world, to grab our attention. Sometimes God uses a song, sometimes God uses a, something that you weren't even expecting to happen. But his voice is clear and you will know it's clear, especially when it aligns with his word. God's will and call is discerned and discovered when we listen and go to scripture and have godly men and women around us who can point us to scripture over and over again. Number one, be certain it's God's voice. Number two, be confident in God's power. Be confident in God's power. Don't be like Moses. Don't be hesitant. Don't waffle. Don't change your path when times get tough. You don't have the power. You never will have the power to respond to God on your own initiative. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not about you. It's not about your abilities. It's about God. It's about his power to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And he uses very weak, imperfect people to carry out his will in ways that we don't even fathom and, and understand. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, it says this, Our God, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And so we stay focused, confident in God's power, always looking to him for direction, always looking to his word. Um, centuries after Moses, this reluctant servant, 
who didn't want to go to Egypt on his own, who was questioning of himself, centuries later, there will be another prophet who will come from a very obscure town in Nazareth. And God the Father will call him to do something impossible. And this prophet, unlike Moses, didn't waffle. This prophet didn't ask for somebody else to go with him. This prophet didn't deny the call of God. He accepted it at every level, even knowing that the call of God would cost him his life. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of Moses. Where Moses failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Moses brought the law, Jesus brought truth and grace. Aren't you glad that we have a prophet who didn't waffle? Aren't you glad that we had a prophet who knew he was gonna go into the situation that he went into, and yet he faced it with a determined purpose, not to detract from what the Father's will was, but even if it cost him his life, he would go the whole way through this to secure life for us, eternal life, through what Jesus did. Uh, when you see the failures of Moses, don't forget to see the success of Jesus. Uh, don't forget to see where Jesus succeeded is where all of us fail. And that's why we need him and depend on, on him on a daily basis. All right, let's pray. We'll be out here. <clears throat> Father in heaven, um, it is inexplicable to me that you use uh, very frail and sinful people to do anything of purpose, of value, of significance. And yet, in your perfect will, you have designed it, you have orchestrated it, that you would use people uh, despite our shortcomings, despite our sinful tendencies, that you would use us for great purposes, God. And, and I know there's so many people here that um, feel called into a, a specific task, maybe from you, they're, they're entering maybe a new step in a stage in life. Maybe they're going from engagement to getting married and you have called them to be a, a husband or a wife. Maybe they're going from a, a husband and wife to now being a parent, a father or a mother, and you have called them to this great task. I pray that they would be confident in your calling and they would be strong in the power that you have given to them. I know there are so many people that are going through difficult situations right now, and in a way you have called them to face those tasks, to face those difficulties, those trials and that suffering, uh, through your power and through your will for reasons that are unknown to us. And so I pray that they would be confident in your power. And I pray that they would discern your voice clearly through the pages of scripture, encourage them as they face the tasks that you have placed upon them as well. Lord, we, we thank you for this book and um, we pray as we continue to read Exodus, the way that you have worked through your people in the past, that it will just remind us of what you will do in the present, um, coming alongside us, with your presence, giving us your power, your security, your significance, and your identity uh, upon us. We pray that uh, we would be strong in those things. God, we ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.